The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Chapter 13 How I Fell In with the Curate. Hello, and thank you for joining Public Domain Playhouse for yet another chapter of H.G. Wells' immortal classic, The War of the Worlds. When you say H.G. Wells, an immortal classic, it's not necessarily which direction you're going to go. The man was literally quite a genius at setting the bar in multiple genres. Fiction, nonfiction. He was the one who probably created the word trope. So we are paying homage to him in our 13th chapter tonight, How I Fell In with the Curate. Curate is basically a helper to a parish. He's somebody who's ultimately concerned with the health and well-being of the members of the parish. More or less, he's like a priest's helper. And we'll find out exactly how he interacts with our friend the narrator here in a little bit. But first, we're going to take a look at the impact that War of the Worlds has had. If you were with us last time in Chapter 12, what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepherdton, you know that for the podcast episode of this podcast, we look a little bit at the background of H.G. Wells and how he impacted the world around him, which is where we're at now. And the most infamous version of The War of the Worlds was Orson Welles' production of The War of the Worlds, a special Halloween Eve edition of his Mercury Theater on the Air. Tonight we're going to take a look at the production of Welles' version of Welles' The War of the Worlds, Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air, which was the 17th episode of the CBS radio series. It was broadcast on 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938. H.G. Wells' original novel tells the story of the Martian invasion, and the novel was adapted for radio by Howard Koch, blacklisted Hollywood writer in 1951, but in 1938, he helped Orson Welles bring this story to the radio. He changed the primary setting from 19th century England to the contemporary United States, with the landing point of the first Martian spacecraft being Grover's Mill, an unincorporated village in West Windsor Township, New Jersey. The program's format was a simulated live newscast of developing events, basically fake news, real fake news. The first two-thirds of the hour-long play is a contemporary retelling of the events of the novel, presented as news bulletins. They kept interrupting programs of live dance music. I had conceived of the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening, Wells later said, and would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be real, as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time rather than a mere radio play. That approach was similar to Ronald Knox's radio hoax broadcasting the barricades about a riot overtaking London that was broadcast by the BBC in 1926, which Wells later said gave him the idea for The War of the Worlds. A 1927 drama aired by Adelaide Station 5CL depicted an invasion of Australia via the same techniques and inspired reactions similar to those of Wells' broadcast. (laughs) 
Orson Welles was also influenced by the Columbia Workshop presentations of The Fall in the City, a 1937 radio play in which Welles played the role of an omniscient announcer and Air Raid, a vibrant as-it-happens drama starring Ray Collins that aired October 27, 1938. Wells had previously used a newscast format for Julius Caesar on September 11, 1938, with H. V. Kaltenborn providing historical commentary throughout the story. The War of the Worlds broadcast used techniques similar to those of The March of Time, the CBS News documentary and dramatization radio series. Wells was a member of the program's regular cast, having first performed on The March of Time in March 1935. The Mercury Theater on the air and The March of Time shared many cast members, too, as well as sound effects chief Aura D. Nichols. Aura, mad props for sound effects love. I know exactly how you felt. Wells discussed his fake newscast idea with producer John Hausman and associate producer Paul Stewart. Together, they decided to adapt a work of science fiction. They considered adapting M.P. Shields' The Purple Cloud and Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World before purchasing the radio rights to The War of the Worlds. Hausman later wrote that he suspected Orson Welles had never even read it. Howard Koch had written the first drafts for the Mercury Theater broadcasts Hell on Ice on October 9th, 17 on October 16th, and Around the World in 80 Days on October 23rd. Monday, October 24th, he was assigned to adapt The War of the Worlds for broadcast the following Sunday night. Tuesday night, 36 hours before rehearsals were to begin, Koch telephoned Hausman in what the producer characterized as deep distress. Koch said he could not make War of the Worlds interesting or credible as a radio play, a conviction echoed by his secretary, Anne Freilich, a typist and aspiring writer whom Hausman had hired to assist him. With only his own abandoned script for Lorna Dune to fall back on, Hausman told Koch to continue adapting the Wells' fantasy. He joined Koch and Freilich, and they worked together on the script throughout the night, and on Wednesday night, the first draft was finished on schedule. On Thursday, associate producer Paul Stewart held a cast reading of the script, with Koch and Hausman making necessary changes. That afternoon, Stewart made an acetate recording with no music or sound effects. Wells immersed in the rehearsing of the Mercury stage production of Danton's Death, scheduled to open the following week, played the record at an editorial meeting that night in his suite at the St. Regis Hotel. And after hearing Air Raid on the Columbia Workshop earlier that same evening, Wells viewed the script as dull. He stressed the importance of inserting news flashes and eyewitness accounts into the script to create a sense of urgency and excitement. Hausman, Koch, and Stewart reworked the script that night, increasing the number of news bulletins and using the names of real places and people whenever possible. Friday afternoon, the script was sent to Davidson Taylor, executive producer for CBS, and the network legal department. Their response was that the script was too credible and that its realism had to be toned down. As using the names of actual institutions could be actionable, CBS insisted upon some 28 changes in the phrasing in Orson Welles' first draft of The War of the Worlds. 
Under protest and with a deep sense of grievance, we changed the Hotel Biltmore to a non-existent park plaza. Transamerica Radio News to Intercontinental Radio News and Columbia Broadcasting Building to Broadcasting Building. Halsman wrote, I don't know if that's what he sounded like this. That's just the voice that I'm giving him since I picture him being from New York. The United States Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C. was changed to the Government Weather Bureau, Princeton University Observatory to Princeton Observatory, McGill University in Montreal to McMillan University in Toronto, uh, New Jersey to National Guard to State Militia, United States Signal Corps to Signal Corps, uh, Langley Field to Langham Field, and uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral to the Cathedral. On Saturday, Stewart rehearsed the show with the sound effects team, giving special attention to crowd scenes, the echo of cannon fire, and the sound of boat horns in New York Harbor. Early Sunday afternoon on the day of the show, Bernard Herman and his orchestra arrived in the studio where Wells had taken over production of that evening's program. To create the role of reporter Carl Phillips, actor Frank Reddick went to the record library and played the recording of Herbert Morrison's radio report of the Hindenburg disaster over and over. Working with Bernard Herrmann and the orchestra that had to sound like a dance hall band fell to Paul Stewart the person Wells would later credit as being largely responsible for the quality of the War of the Worlds broadcast. Wells, a master of suspense, wanted the music to play for unbearably long stretches of time. The studio's emergency fill-in A solo piano playing Debussy and Chopin was heard several times. As it played on and on, Hausman wrote, its effect became increasingly sinister. A thin band of suspense stretched almost beyond endurance. That piano was the neatest trick of the show. dress rehearsal was scheduled for 6 p.m. Our actual broadcasting time from the first mention of the meteorites to the fall of New York City was less than 40 minutes, wrote Hausman. During that time, men traveled long distances, large bodies of troops were mobilized, cabinet meetings were held, savage battles fought on land and in air, (laughs) and millions of people accepted it, emotionally if not logically. So H.G. Wells's impact could actually resonate some 40 years after he wrote the book. If you join us next time, we will take a look at the cast of the Mercury Theater on the Air's War of the Worlds, as well as the broadcast. We'll take a look at the plot summary, which varies a little bit in important ways from the original novel by H.G. Wells, published in 1897. But tonight, we're going to hear chapter 13, How I Fell In with the Curate. But first, let's take a quick look back at chapter 12, 
what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton, so that we can all be on the same page. Again, thank you for joining us here at Public Domain Playhouse. It's a pleasure to have you here. As always, our chapter notes are brought to us by schmoop.com, S-H-M-O-O-P. They're great for notes with a little bit of life. As you recall in chapter 12, what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepherdton, the chapter title wasn't very cheerful at all, so there's absolutely no point in hoping for anything happy to happen. The artillery man plans to meet up with his unit in London in order to continue the fight with the Martians, while the narrator plans to meet up with his wife in Leatherhead in order to get the heck out of the country. Personally, we'd opt for plan two. The artillery man and our narrator take some food, and to avoid the third cylinder, they take the long path. Luckily for the audience, the long route passes through a lot of destruction, so we get to hear about the charred bodies and abandoned possessions all over the road. We suppose this is Wells's way of reminding us that there's a war going on and everything else is trivial. On their way, the narrator and the artilleryman run into three cavalrymen, and they share some information about the Martians. Also, the narrator notices that one of them has a heliograph, which is actually a wireless communication system, similar to the old-fashioned telegraph. It uses Morse code and the sun to signal long distances away, and it was used by the English artillery until the 1960s. So the narrator notices that one of them has a heliograph. It looks like a theodolite. If you must know what those words mean, a theodolite is a device used in surveying and measuring, and a heliograph is a device that uses a mirror to send light signals. One of the cavalrymen tells them to go to Weybridge, where the brigadier general is, and as the narrator and artillerymen travel farther from the front, the world seems more peaceful and ordinary. Except there are other artillerymen setting up their guns, so it's not completely ordinary. Still, if we must have something out of the ordinary, we'll take artillery being set up over charred bodies any day of the week. Both are a little out of the ordinary, but one involves fewer charred bodies. When the narrator and the artilleryman reach Weybridge, they see the military trying to evacuate people. The one old man doesn't get it. He wants to leave without his valuable orchids. So the narrator gently tells him, Death! Death is coming! Death! The old man doesn't quite get that message. The narrator and the artilleryman hang around Weybridge. It's not quite panic-stricken, and they seem to calm down a little bit. For instance, they find the time to help some old woman pack, and the people of Weybridge are evacuating, but not panicked about it. Why? because they think of the Martians as simply formidable human beings who might attack and sack the town, but would be certainly destroyed in the end. The army's guns start firing, and then stop firing when the Martians have destroyed them. The Martian tripods become visible, and the Martians continue to do what they do best, which is destroy stuff. To escape the terrible heat ray, the narrator decides to get into the River Thames, which seemed like a good idea, except that the heat ray causes the water to boil, which is kind of the point of the heat ray after all. 
The Thames gets especially hot when one of the Martian tripods falls into the river after some artillery kills the Martian driving it. So if you're keeping score at home, that's humans one, Martians... Well, we don't have the precise numbers, but it's got to be over a hundred by now. Rather than get out of the boiling water, the narrator wants to go check on the Martian wreck. And that's what we call having one's priorities out of order. The narrator eventually crawls out of the boiling water and falls down on the riverbank, and from that position, he sees the remaining tripods take the wreckage of their fallen tripod buddy away. So that was the touchy-feely chapter 12, what I saw of the destruction of those two towns. And now we're on to how I fell in with the curate. Thanks again for joining Public Domain Playhouse for War of the Worlds. Chapter 13. How I Fell In with the Curate. After getting this sudden lesson in the power of terrestrial weapons, the Martians retreated to their original position upon Horsel Common, and in their haste, and encumbered with the debris of their smashed companion, they no doubt overlooked many such a stray and negligible victim as myself. Had they left their comrade and pushed on forthwith, there was nothing at that time between them and London but batteries of twelve-pounder guns, and they would certainly have reached the capital in advance of tidings of their approach. As sudden, dreadful, and destructive their advent would have been as the earthquake that destroyed Lisbon a century ago. But they were in no hurry. Cylinder followed cylinder upon its interplanetary flight. Every 24 hours brought them reinforcement. And meanwhile, the military and naval authorities, now fully alive to the tremendous power of their antagonists, worked with furious energy. Every minute, a fresh gun came into position until, before twilight, every copse, every row of suburban villas and on the hilly slopes about Kingston and Richmond masked an expectant black muzzle. And through the charred and desolate area, perhaps twenty square miles altogether, that encircled the Martian encampment on Horsel Common, through charred and ruined villages among the green trees, through the blackened and smoking arcades that had been but a day ago pine spinnies, crawled the devoted scouts with the heliographs that were presently to warn the gunners of the Martian approach. But the Martians now understood our command of artillery and the danger of human proximity and not a man ventured within a mile of either cylinder, save at the price of his life. It would seem that these giants spent the earlier part of the afternoon in going to and fro, transferring everything from the second and third cylinders to the second in Addleston Golf Links, and the third at Pierford to their original pit on Horsel Common. Over that above the blackened heather and ruined buildings that stretched far and wide, stood one as sentinel, while the rest abandoned their vast fighting machines and descended into the pit. 
They were hard at work there into the night, and the towering pillar of dense green smoke that rose therefrom could be seen from the hills about Merrow, and even, it is said, from Banstead and Epsom Downs. And while the Martians behind me were thus preparing for their next sally, and in front of me humanity gathered for the battle, I made my way with infinite pains and labor from the fire and smoke of burning Weybridge towards London. I saw an abandoned boat, very small and remote, drifting downstream, and throwing off most of my sodden clothes, I went after it, gained it, and so escaped out of the destruction. There were no oars in the boat, but I contrived to paddle, as well as my parboiled hands would allow, down the river towards Halliford and Walton, going very tediously and continually looking behind me, as you may well understand. I followed the river because I considered that the water gave me my best chance of escape should these giants return. The hot water from the Martians' overthrow drifted downstream with me, so that for the best part of a mile I could see little of either bank. Once, however, I made out a string of black figures hurrying across the meadows from the direction of Weybridge. Halliford, it seemed, was deserted, and several of the houses facing the river were on fire. It was strange to see the place quite tranquil, quite desolate under the hot blue sky, with the smoke and the little threads of flame going straight up into the heat of the afternoon. Never before had I seen houses burning without the accompaniment of an obstructive crowd. A little farther on, the dry reeds up the bank were smoking and glowing, and a line of fire inland was marching steadily across the late field of hay. For a long time I drifted. So painful and weary was I after the violence I had been through, and so intense the heat upon the water. Then my fears got the better of me again, and I resumed my paddling. The sun scorched my bare back. At last, as the bridge at Walton was coming into sight round the bend, my fever and faintness overcame my fears, and I landed on the Middlesex bank and lay down, deadly sick. I suppose the time was then about four or five o'clock. I got up presently walked perhaps half a mile without meeting a soul, and then lay down again in the shadow of a hedge. I seem to remember talking wanderingly to myself during that last spurt. I was also very thirsty and bitterly regretful. I had drunk no more water. It is a curious thing that I felt angry with my wife. I cannot account for it, but my impotent desire to reach Leatherhead worried me excessively. I do not clearly remember the arrival of the curate, so that probably I dozed. I became aware of him 
as a seated figure in smudged shirt sleeves, and with his upturned, clean-shaven face staring at a faint flickering that danced over the sky. The sky was what was called a mackerel sky, rows and rows of faint down plumes of cloud just tinted with the midsummer sunset. I sat up, and at the rustle of my motion, he looked at me quickly. Have you any water? I asked abruptly. He shook his head. You have been asking for water for the last half hour, he said. For a moment, we were silent, taking stock of each other. I dare say he found me a strange enough figure, naked save for my water-soaked trousers and socks, scalded and my face and shoulders blackened by smoke. His face was a fair weakness, his chin retreated, and his hair lay in crisp, almost flaxen curls on his low forehead. His eyes were rather large, pale blue, and blankly staring. He spoke abruptly, looking vacantly away from me. What does it mean? he said. What do these things mean? I stared at him and made no answer. He extended a thin white hand and spoke in almost a complaining tone. Why are these things permitted? What sins have we done? The morning service was over. I was walking through the woods to clear my brain for the afternoon and then... Fire! Earthquake! Death! As if it were Sodom and Gomorrah! All our work undone. All the work. What are these Martians? What are we? I answered, clearing my throat. He gripped his knees and turned to look at me again. For half a minute, perhaps, he stared silently. I was walking through the roads to clear my brain, he said, and suddenly fire, earthquake, Death. He relapsed into silence, and his chin now sunken almost to his knees. Presently he began waving his hand. All the work, all the Sunday schools. What have we done? What has Wade Bridge done? Everything gone, everything destroyed. The church, we built it only three years ago. Gone, swept out of existence. Why? Another pause, and he broke out again like one demented. The smoke of her burning goeth up forever and ever, he shouted. His eyes flamed, and he pointed a lean finger in the direction of Weybridge. By this time, I was beginning to take his measure. The tremendous tragedy in which he had been involved, it was evident he was a fugitive from Weybridge, had driven him to the very verge of his reason. Are we far from Sainsbury? I said, in a matter-of-fact tone. What are we to do? He asked. Are these creatures everywhere? Has the earth been given over to them? Are we far from Sunbury? Only this morning I officiated at early celebration. Things have changed, I said quietly. You must keep your head. There is still hope. Hope? Yes, 
plentiful hope for all this destruction. I began to explain my view of our position. He listened at first, but as I went on, the interest dawning in his eyes gave place to their former stare, and his regard wandered from me. This must be the beginning of the end, he said, interrupting me. The end! The great and terrible day of the Lord, when men shall call upon the mountains, and the rocks to fall upon them and hide them, hide them from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. I began to understand the position. I ceased my labored reasoning, struggled to my feet, and standing over him, laid my hand on his shoulder. Be a man, said I. You are scared out of your wits. What good is religion if it collapses under calamity? Think of what earthquakes and floods, wars and volcanoes have done before to men. Did you think God had exempted Weybridge? He is not an insurance agent. For a time he sat in blank silence. But how can we escape? He asked suddenly. They are invulnerable. They are pitiless. Neither one nor perhaps the other, I answered. And the mightier they are, the more sane and wary should we be. One of them was killed yonder not three hours ago. Killed, he said, staring about him. How can God's ministers be killed? I saw it happen. I proceeded to tell him. We have a chance to come in for the thick of it, said I, and that is all. What is that flicker in the sky? He asked abruptly. I told him it was the heliograph signaling and that it was the sign of human help and effort in the sky. We are in the midst of it, I said, quiet as it is. That flicker in the sky tells of the gathering storm. Yonder I take it are the Martians, and Londonward, where those hills rise about Richmond and Kingston, and the trees give cover. Earthworks are being thrown up, and guns are being placed. Presently the Martians will be coming this way again. And even as I spoke, he sprang to his feet and stopped me by a gesture. Listen, he said. From beyond the low hills across the water came the dull resonance of distant guns and a remote weird crying. Then everything was still. A cockchafer came droning over the hedge and past us. High in the west, the crescent moon hung faint and pale above the smoke of Weybridge and Shepherdton, and the hot, still splendor of the sunset. We had better follow this path, I said, northward. And there you have it for chapter 13, How I Fell In with the Curate. I'm Bart, your narrator, guide, and sound effects guru. Hoping that you enjoyed this chapter, and we'll come back again and join us for chapter 14. Ooh, it's about to get good. In London. That's right. We're getting all the way to the heart of the UK 
and we're going to find out exactly what those Martian boys have in mind. Or maybe it's Martian girls. I don't know. Martian boys or girls? Are we ever going to find out? These burning questions and more will be answered in future editions of Public Domain Playhouse. Thank you again for joining us. And as always at Public Domain Playhouse, we'll see you in the next chapter. <laughs>